thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade all of my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last show, we proceeded forward in our narrative with a brief excerpt from my last book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which you can obtain at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other places to review in more detail. In our lengthy multi-show review of the narrative directly from my book, in particular the historical section detailing the origins, motives, and hidden industrial backers of conservative Christian media, we aired a little dirty laundry of spiritual mobilization founder, Reverend James Fifield, details on his Faith and Freedom newsletter, and introduced a rival player in pro-business Christian media, Howard Kirshner. In this next installment, we will review further the next step in the evolutionary founding of Christian libertarianism, which used the deep pockets of industrialists and tycoons to craft another gospel that tortuously defined a biblically defendable worldview of the good news gospel as being one that turned their backs on the destitute, downtrodden, and those stuck, struck by hardship or misfortune as being lazy and not worthy of assistance, saw the wealth class as the virtuous of society and their economic exploitation unfettered, and an elected democratic government that set bounds on such exploitation as being evil. We will also see how Sunoco oil tycoon J. Howard Pugh, Jr., who bankrolled spiritual mobilization to further these aims, felt that this nationwide and impactful movement was not enough, and also fashioned a pro-business spiritual mobilization on steroids called the Christian Freedom Foundation, 
with its party organ being Christian Economics, an organization he set up as a front without his covert connection due to his negative public perception in those days as having been the ringleader of an attempted fascist overthrow of our government in 1933, coined by the press the business plot. We now resume our review of the text from my last book where we left off with a very descriptive paper describing this new movement from the website of the home of American libertarianism, the Mises Institute. We now proceed with the narrative. The Mises Institute website also hosts a lengthy paper written about, quote, the importance of Christian thought for the American libertarian movement, unquote which includes further details about the pertinent work of Kirshner and his allies and sponsors, and can be currently read online. Their author, Hadigan, writes that, quote, spiritual virtues were the predominant justification for espousing a libertarian viewpoint before 1971, and continue today to provide the founding convictions of many American libertarians and conservatives. A case can even be made that Christian libertarianism forms the foundation of any claims for American exceptionalism. And as a body of political thought, largely as a consequence of the pressures exerted upon individual freedom by New Deal liberalism and events of the early Cold War, Christian libertarianism received its fullest exposition in the 1950s and 1960s. He adds that, quote, one of the distinguishing figures of the conservative intellectual movement after 1950 was the financial backing it attracted from businessmen in the United States, either through individual donations or the establishment of think tanks and foundations. Industrialists provided the finance needed to spread the conservative message to a wider audience than before. One of the most, if not the most, generous of these donors was the retired Pennsylvania oil man, J. Howard Pugh. With a gift of personal stock from his company Sun Oil, he established the Christian Freedom Foundation, CFF, in May 1950. Because of his personal religious beliefs, Pugh desired that all his philanthropic activity remain anonymous. And as a result, he allowed the story to circulate that the CFF was organized and founded by Howard E. Kirshner. The retired Quaker businessman who became the first president of the new foundation and editor of the organization's four-page bi-weekly paper, Christian Economics. The two men's correspondence, however, reveals that the CFF was Pew's idea and that after consultation with Reverend Norman Vincent Peale in the fall of 1949, he invited Kirshner to become the president of the new organization. In a 1961 letter to a friend, at which point he had spent nearly $2.7 million on his own organization, Pugh explained why he had started the CFF in 1950. He stated that in 1946 and 1947, as assistant chairman and then chairman of the Public Relations Committee of the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM, he had commissioned an opinion poll to determine why businessmen were so distrusted by the American public and why, in general, capitalism was under attack. He was surprised to find that respondents named their ministers as the most influential molders of public opinion 
and shocked in that, in quote, in those tests it came out that the Protestant churches were doing more to promote socialism and communism than any other group, unquote. As a consequence, Pew related, he started a paper to educate ministers in correct principles. And for the next 20 years, Pew's paper, Christian Economics, now listen to this, was sent free to every minister in the United States, approaching its peak circulation of 200,000 ministers. Now what the ministers received was a paper that promoted the idea that the free market economy is implicitly sanctioned, but not specifically endorsed by lessons contained in the Bible. God gave us the way, the Ten Commandments, by which to live a moral life. Unfortunately, the original sin of mankind meant that individuals tried to circumvent the divine law, and only the threat of harsh punishment by this earthly authority prevented the strong from enslaving the weak. Now, this idea of um, the, the original sin and depravity of man is very much a Calvinist thing of Pew's background. In effect, individuals were coerced to obey God's plan for his creation through fear of the consequences. The crucial development came for the Christian libertarian when Jesus wrote the desire to follow voluntarily the Ten Commandments into the heart of mankind. Jesus gave us the choice, the individual freedom, to believe in him and his message or to reject him. And as no man-made authority can intervene in that decision, the most important an individual can make well, then no earthly authority can intervene in an individual's free agency in those parts of their life, economic, political, or religious, where mankind attempts to be a good Christian and living according to the laws revealed in the Bible. Thus, government is a necessary evil, as Thomas Paine once argued, limited to the police powers of preventing the unregenerate from injuring the life, liberty, and property of their fellow citizens. When libertarian opposing government regulations between an individual of their God. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But let's take a moment to sort out what this libertarianism proponent author is really saying from the facts expressed and by reading between the lines. In trying to decipher the intended purposes of Christian libertarians, are trying to use the Bible for in convoluted fashion versus a plain reading of history, reality, and a plain sense reading of scripture, as we discovered earlier in this book. It can be seen that the highly unpopular and marginalized view of unvarnished libertarianism, now not the aspects of free association and self-determination when not infringing on the rights of others that are rightfully espoused and laudatory, but rather unfettered markets that provide no protections for individuals or small businesses, the celebration of selfish indulgence in opposition to organized labor, environmental, consumer, and worker safety protections, and any assistance to the most destitute, disabled, or elderly. They would not be taken seriously by most Americans of even the most modest of morality if not bankrolled by big business. In fact, big oil, including big energy like the Koch brothers, almost single-handedly seems to have kept not only libertarianism afloat, 
but also Billy Graham. See, Sid Richardson, oil man for Billy Graham. And much of the religious right. Although one should not discount the huge financial role of others like Reverend Moon and the Unification Church, as told in the next book volume, and the widow's mites confiscated by the televangelist and newsletter alarmist. Related to that, another certainty is that big business does not invest in anything without an agenda, and that will eventually be one that ultimately enriches their own pockets and those of their henchmen. It is clear here that Pew's recognition that the people had gotten wise to their industrial age, gilded age, robber baron exploitation that had led the country into the Great Depression and urban squalor and mass production servitude, only to be remediated by the meager resources of the Christian social gospel do-gooders, and that more clergy were getting back to Bible-based advocacy and ministry to the poor, widow, orphan and stranger, and had an effective moral bully pulpit, literally and figuratively. Well, this required his fellow aristocrats throwing their 30 pieces of silver at tempting Judases in the clergy in a manner they knew they could buy their support and help in sacredizing their big business, common man exploiting agenda with a veneer of Bible imagery. The communism and socialism, unquote, the big business NAM people thought the clergy promoted were radical ideas like worker rights and union collective bargaining, worker safety, education for all, consumer protections and the like, which to them were dangerous ideological concepts. Now, their veneer of Bible imagery, masquerading as theology, had the gall to suggest that the Bible endorsed unregulated free markets, when, as we've seen, the Bible is chock full of admonitions from God himself that the rich and merchants will consistently exploit the poor and vulnerable in the marketplace with, quote, dishonest weights and measures, unquote, and drain the poor man's vitality by dragging him into court in legal expenses or throwing him into debtor's prison, for which those in power and the people who tolerate it and have a say, will be held accountable by God. Their system glorifies the rich man, of whom Jesus himself says it's hard for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The libertarian focuses, obsesses, and fetishizes on property, wealth, assets, and possessions, tearing down barns to build new ones. While Jesus says they are liabilities that can keep us out of the kingdom, like the rich young ruler. People who bankroll the libertarian industry are primarily concerned with minimizing taxes, regulations to protect consumers, workers, and the environment that will impact their profit line, and government referees in the marketplace between the wealthy, their marketers, Madison Avenue advertisers, public relations groups and lawyers, and the poor individual consumer or worker that has just enough dough at the end of the month. However, they, they thinly disguise their motives to the gullible public by emphasizing personal freedom and liberty and characterized by noble individual fighting the government system. In fact, it is a freedom to be swindled, fooled, cajoled, 
threatened, and sued into compliance if they wish to feed the family that month. They accept their well-funded assertion that the government is the enemy. The same one that Jesus paid taxes without reluctance and told his disciples to do so, did not resist or rebuke, and which protected the Apostle Paul from Jewish mobs, fed Jacob and his sons, provided a decent life to exiled rebellious Jews in Babylon and the poor in their old homeland. We all know the evils of corrupt government officials and laws and the duty to our neighbors to resist them when we are given such rights and duties as citizens, which the same Christians often neglect to do, such as over slavery in America. But nowhere does the Bible express righteous, law-abiding government as inherently evil. And in fact, we are told to obey them whenever possible to advance the gospel. The taxes Jesus and Paul paid to pagan Rome built and maintained the roads and their security that were used to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. These Babylon gospel great merchants are trying to get Americans to not only resist paying the compulsory taxes uh, without representation that the Roman subjects and Christians throughout the ages willingly paid, but even resist taxes for which they directly participate in the selection of representative proxies to make such determinations on their behalf with the ability to quickly replace them if they're dissatisfied. Now, many Americans find this no-tax, no-regulations message quite seductive. Although they were raised in a blessed era of public schools they could attend, even if their family was poor, public assistance if their family went through a tough spell, or strike pay if pertinent, a network of roads to travel, conduct business, vacation and visit friends and relatives, parks to enjoy nature, including national parks, and libraries to learn and experience the world, without recognizing that someone paid for all that. They do not realize that if they lived in the, quote, libertarian dream existing up to the dawn of the 20th century, most of them would not have achieved any appreciable education, They would have been denied proper nutrition or health care with high resultant mortality and likely worked in a mine or a sweatshop for endless hours until they died an early death from overwork, black lung, asbestos, workplace accidents, malnutrition, or inadequate health care, unless they were the few that were rich enough to afford it. Libertarian blessings they all missed because of some infernal do-gooder social gospeler who strode into the dangerous and sickening filth of the urban decay and began to minister to the wretched there. This was the world that the overwhelming number of the peoples of Europe and later the United States lived under during the entire church age, while they were largely in charge, both by way of their Christian kingdom leaders and their church and the Christian populace sitting on the bulk of their nation's wealth. If they did not eradicate poverty and suffering with their industrial age wealth and Protestant work ethic for 2,000 years of Christian rule and cultural dominance, why would we believe the libertarians that they would suddenly do it now if the secular government would only get out of the way instead of the latter having to fill a void of compassion and intervention 
that the Christian community largely failed to meet. Like the religious leaders who stepped aside around their wounded kinsmen that only the heretical Samaritan would dare assist. The idea that Jesus died on the cross and preached a kingdom of heaven so that people could resist any collective assistance for the poor or needy and only grudgingly pay for soldiers or policemen, which some libertarians even complain about that, when we know that God will judge the nations and its rulers, even supernatural ones, for neglecting the weak and vulnerable, is the height of blasphemy, particularly when these agendas violate one of the two primary laws which Christ says still applies and for which the libertarians so strenuously reject, the golden rule. They scapegoat the government as the only source of coercion without acknowledging its primary role as society's collective coercive counterbalance to the coercive power of wealth in the marketplace, the workplace, the ballot box, and the courts against the poor, the commoner peasant, the stranger and the weak unconnected and otherwise exploitable, and have hoodwinked much of the public to adopt such clouded and one-sided views. Most sadly, this includes even much of the Christian leadership and populace that people used to look up to as their advocates and friends. And even with the myriad of biblical admonitions, such as from the Bible they say they believe, sola scriptura style, and will defend its inerrancy, that warn them against such. Now, this section was probably some of the strongest worded to date in our review of my recent book section on the history of the founding of Christian libertarianism and conservative Christian mass media. It was particularly geared for religious right leaders to set up and take notice using their own beloved scriptures to condemn them for the fundamental values they swallowed for their own selfish benefit and without question, and I hope they were suitably offended. I dare them to reopen both the Old and New Testaments to find God's consistent message about the wealthy and powerful and their control over the marketplace and society, and God's institution of governments to stop such abuse of the weights and measures of the marketplace, fair wages that are withheld, and courts weighted against the poor, as the powerful stack their own unjust weights on every scale of society and human interaction. If such a message is not understood by this crowd, well, I may be forced to recite to them the many passages in the Bible pertaining to such from other portions of my book. We're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News which is available in print and ebook at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other retailers. I encourage you to get a copy and to study it. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefing, and this week we will review some strange stories about Putin and the Russian mind from recent events, which were alluded to in last week's extended review of the history of the Russian worldview, but for which we ran out of time. Before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. For the serious topics we are discussing this week, we have two strange and even humorous musical selections this week. In honor of this business think mindset discussion of this segment, we will introduce a strange class of musical pieces 
like those I love, but few else know about, this one being an example of, quote, industrial musicals. For those of you who've watched Mad Men on TV or, or of the older set are familiar with old-school business and marketing culture, with its misogyny, hedonism, wealth obsession, and in climbing the corporate ladder, all for the benefit of the board. Sociolog sociologists like Vance Packer have written definitive volumes on how post-war white-collar business values, extolled by the Christian libertarianism, libertarians and men like Pew, with its high travel and long hours at work as one's primary devotion and means of self-worth, have weakened marriages and families, with relocations and travel even loosening one's connection and interaction with one's own community as well. This is a second phase of the great city Babylon eroding one's natural identity from their family members and community, as the Industrial Age first brought on and moving people to the cities and to work in factories as opposed to the farms with their kinfolk, and the gilded age of long and hazardous work hours for the workers. Plays and movies like Glen Gary, Glen Ross really drive home the desperation in the modern white-collar worker. The industrial musicals I mentioned, as strange as they are to our culture, were separate from jingos and commercials intended for their customers, but rather intended as catchy pep rallies for the workers themselves, with elaborate musicals written and performed by the top talent on Broadway, but not performed for the public, but rather for corporate meetings and trade shows for their white-collar and in particular marketing and sales forces, extolling the virtues of the product and long hours hustling to market and sell it, inspiring them to enrich the corporate owners in exchange for trinkets of reward in return. These musicals were for a limited audience, but paid much higher budgets and pay than on Broadway, and would be lost except for those who were recorded on souvenir LPs, like the cut we're about to hear. I want you to enjoy Who Takes Credit? Me! From the 1959 musical That Agency Thing, which about ad agencies, which featured prominent voice artists like June Foray, who did Rocky uh, of Rocky and Bullwinkle, uh, uh, Paul Fries, who did Boris Badenoff and a million other voices. Uh, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. You've got to learn... The little trick, whereby a man climbs up above his fellow men. The trick is not in who does what, but who does what, when. Let's say that there's a problem with a client. I go home to bed while you sit burning midnight oil each night till after three. Then who takes your work out to the client Looking bright and self-reliant Me! Right! When sales are looking black in Kansas City And you need a man who's capable of saying Here's how things are gonna be Who's the one man who has never said it But who's right there to take the credit? <laughs> Me! I get it if I should spark to some remark that you just casually toss off while passing by. There's credit due, but who to? You know who? Me or you? I. 
so twenty years from now when other men still hold the jobs they've held and still think conscientious is the only way to be. Who'll be living in some fine split level, rich, successful as the devil, heading up this giant agency? Me. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last show, we spent the overwhelming proportion of its time giving a somewhat detailed, if cursory, background into the historical development of the Russian national and spiritual mindset, documenting its long legacy of and in preference for all-powerful, unchallenged civil autocracy, betraying a national insecurity that equates dictatorship and unrestrained force with power, and fear and detestation by neighbors with respect, a religious identity based upon national force compulsion and uniformity, devoid of personal relationship with God or the coming kingdom of heaven, or gaining converts by personal testimony, rather in being service to the racist ethnic identity and contrived spiritual mythology of ethnic superiority, and in symphony with the autocratic state to protect both institutions and top aristocratic leaders from allegations of corruption or challenges to their rule inside and out, and a toleration of their dual belief culture of orthodox Christian doctrines and cultish elements of icon and saint veneration and the power of fetishistic relics and the coincident preservation of their older, pre-Christian pagan reliefs and old gods and symbols and traditions, and the ethnic empowerment outside their later Christian supposed domestication. I use this documented information on the curious metaphysical nature of the modern Russian mind and the history of not only its formation and the adulteration of the Russian Orthodox leadership, to maintain its elite status, but also its stated agenda today for the conquering of the Eurasian continents and vanquishing of Western democracy and individualism, as exemplified in its blatant imperialistic launchpad through the independent state of Ukraine, to segue into some recent stories that have emerged as further evidence of these pathologies in Russia in its current acts. But alas, we ran out of time to transition to these news updates. Accordingly, in today's intelligence update case file, we will review two of these recent storylines in an abbreviated case file segment, last week's background of which may help explain these curious stories and their exposure of Russia's strange mindset and actions that will often impact many, if not all, around us in the world and their ramifications. Now, recently I reported, consistent with the efforts of the Russian Orthodox to fashion this Ukraine struggle with the West and their rival Orthodox brethren as a holy war, that since the pitch to demonize the Ukrainians is evil and to thus justify the war by making them Nazis, 
Didn't seem to be working. Patriarch Kirill decided to up the ante by literally demonizing them, and thus officially made President Putin the chief exorcist of the Russian Orthodox Church to de-Satanize that country. Well, the spiritual metaphysics doesn't end there. On April 15, 2022, Business Insider reported that, quote, the Russian warship that was confirmed as sunk on Thursday may have been carrying a holy relic when it went down. The Moskva, a missile cruiser that was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, sank on Thursday following an explosion on board, Russian state media reported. A news report from 2020 has given rise to the question of whether the vessel sank with a Christian relic, a piece of the true cross on board. The Russian Orthodox Church announced in February 2020 that the relic had been delivered to the then commander of the Black Sea Fleet, Vice Admiral Igor Osipov, and was at the fleet's headquarters ready to deliver it to the ship shortly the state-run task news agency reported at the time. The relic in question is a fragment of wood, just millimeters large, that, according to believers, is a piece of the cross on which Christ was crucified, Tass said. That fragment is embedded in a 19th century metal cross, which is itself kept in a requilary, according to the outlet. The Moskva had a chapel on board where sailors could pray, Sergei Kalutya, archpriest of the Russian Orthodox Church's Sevastopol district, told TASS. He said the fragment was to be transferred at the request of its owner, an anonymous collector. Insider was unable to establish when the relic was finally transferred to the Moskva or if it was on board at the time of the vessel's sinking. The sinking of the Moskva, a prized flagship, is a major blow to Russian morale. Moscow has ignored claims of responsibility from Ukraine, which says it struck the ship with a long-range missile from land. The exact details of how the ship sunk are still unclear. Russian officials said on Thursday that a fire caused an explosion of the ammunition on board, prompting an evacuation of the crew. CNN cited a person familiar with the intelligence as saying that the U.S. believes Ukraine's claim with medium confidence. The Moskva attracted headlines at the outbreak of the war for an exchange with Ukrainian border guards on Zeminyi, or Snake Island, as the ship asked them to evacuate. The resulting conversation, in which the guards told the ship's crew to go F yourself, went viral and became the rallying cry for Ukraine's war effort. I might add that since then, a postage stamp was released by the Ukrainian post office with that phrase and a man giving a hand signal to the ship. Uh, ironically, um, they were taking captive, those brave soldiers, a handful of them, when overwhelmed, and eventually made their way back home. But the Moskva did not. It's setting at the bottom of the Black Sea. In addition to the primitive obsession with supernaturally powered relics by a superpower, the Russian Orthodox Church and State Mir, or World, has the same exception with not poverty, refugees, justice, spiritual, or human reconciliation, or other priorities of Christ they claim to follow. 
but rather culture wars, and military ones too, with the usual focus on family values and an obsession with those of a gay lifestyle. This is actually what makes the Russian Orthodox Church so attractive to America's religious right leadership in days past. For example, on December 22, 2022, in the middle of a deadly all-out war, and a season at the time promoting God's gift of his son to men, the UK's Daily Mail newspaper reports that, quote, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been portrayed as Santa in an anti-Western propaganda video released on the country's social media. The film, made by a production company called Signal, depicts Santa Putin swapping a photograph of a child's same-sex parents with one of a mother and a father and gifting the boy being raised as a girl a football, toy cars, and a drum kit. The video feeds into Russian prejudices about Europe and the United States, which have been fueled by pro-Kremlin propagandists during the war in Ukraine, to frame the conflict as a clash of values between Russia and Ukraine's Western allies. The clip has been surging in social media in Russia since it was posted, providing a propaganda boon for the Russian leader as it was embarrassingly revealed China Xi Jinping demanded a written explanation from Putin on when he plans to end the war in Ukraine and as his war stretched past its 300th day at that time. The clip shows a boy in the West writing and drawing a picture for Santa, wishing for traditional male toys as well as a mother and a father. In the drawing, the child in the fiction has drawn himself holding hands with a woman and a man. Pictures on the mantelpiece in the child's home show he currently has parent one and parent two, who are both shown to be male. The boy balks at at seemingly being made to dress like a girl, unhappy about a necklace and hairband which he discards on the mantle in disgust. The storyline has the boy being raised against his will as a girl. The camera lingers on books in the child's comfortable home, showing fictional titles like Straight into Gay, Render Me, Gender Me, and Growing Up Gay. It also shows that the room the boy is in has limited Christmas decorations. There's a Christmas tree in the corner, but it has no lights on. After pinning the letter to Santa and placing it in his stocking over the fireplace, the child, wearing pink pajamas, falls asleep on the sofa. As the boy is nodding off, a white-bearded Father Christmas appears with a face closely resembling Putin's. As he arrives, Russian composer Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from the Nutcracker Ballet begins to play. Carrying a red stocking, Santa Putin is then shown busying himself around the room, changing decorations and replacing items deemed to be girly with presents that the makers of the video consider to be more suitable for a boy. The camera pans around the room, showing presents placed throughout, These include boys' shoes and other male clothing, a football, a miniature drum kit, as well as a statue of Jesus on the cross nailed to the wall. This is likely a nod to Russian propagandists often discussing a perceived erosion of Christian values in the West. 
The boy was also shown praying earlier in the clip. The presents have replaced all the girly items, such as the clothing, that were scattered around the room before Satin, uh, Putin Santa arrives. Meanwhile, there are far more Christmas decorations, with dozens of lights seen flashing in the room. The pictures of Parent 1 and Parent 2 are shown to have been changed, now depicting a woman labeled as the mother and a man as the boy's father. As he walks in front of the mirror over the mantelpiece, Santa's face becomes more clear, showing a clear likeness to the Russian president. He glances at the camera before next being shown outside to watch as the boy finds his presence. The boy wakes up smiling to find his new football and transformer toy and looks out the window to where Santa is watching from. The Putin Santa lowers his beard as he departs, so there's no doubt at his supposed identity. He winks and smiles before walking off into the night. A message then appears on the screen which says, Dear Santa, thank you and Merry Christmas from all the children of the world. Putin has sought to portray the West as seeking to impose its alien values on Russia, a message this video seeks to exploit. Isn't that very interesting to see how much his love is for children? I don't know all those many children have been blasted out of their apartments in Ukraine feel the same love for him uh, that that video shows. I think the quick primer on the post-Soviet Russian Ukrainian evolution reveals that the cultish, reality-tenuous post-Soviet holy warrior mindset of the joint Russian autocrat Russian Orthodox Church symphony as in the days of the Tsars, but now with global nuclear and conventional forces, is far more dangerous than its atheist Soviet predecessors. Although they felt no accountability to God, the Soviets were at least pragmatic, and behind closed doors, they could make transactional deals while saving face with enlightened leaders in the West, as Kennedy did with Khrushchev to resolve the terror of the Cuban Missile Crisis. While publicly speaking of the Soviet sphere and the uh, spread of international communism, they could see at times when the goals were beyond reach and humbly cut their losses as they did in Afghanistan and in Poland. In this embodiment, however, currently, the aging and corrupt military and Politburo are overshadowed by a messianic autocrat not accountable to a bureaucracy with illusions of immortal fame engaging in an eternal holy war with the decadent West, aided by a Rasputin-type and Patriarch Kirill, and a theocracy with stated aims of global conquest, starting with Ukraine and then Europe. It is also fed by an obsession with supernaturally powered relics and symbols, aided by the occultist Alexander Dugan, much like the original Crusaders with their relics and Baphomet, and ironically the Nazi SS and their similar obsessions with occult instruments like the Sphere of Destiny and ancient origins of the Germanic peoples. This cult-like madness will not dissipate as easily as ideological loyalty to communism, and it may include an apocalyptic blaze of glory. We would be wise to keep this in mind as we consider the half-century-long agenda of America's religious right and their manipulation of like-minded, or those of conjoined ambitions, political leaders, and what may happen here if they achieve their Seven Mountains Dominionism 
or Christian Reconstructionism theocracy, with apocalyptic visions of final conflict and their hands on the mightiest world-ending arsenal on earth. Before we include the discussions in this segment, we need to take a break for more music for meditation. The seriousness of this topic today may prescribe some actual music for medication, so we'll reduce the tension with a good bit of something silly and woefully dated, just like last segment. It is from a made-up group called Spencer and Spencer, featuring a pop music record comedy skit legend known as Dickie Goodman. His specialty that he pioneered was the, quote, break-in comedy record for the radio, where a pretend interviewer would be uh, replied to, uh, to his questions with a clip from a popular song that seemed to answer them humorously. These records were still very pop- popular on Top 40 Radio when I was young, just like the Cheech and Chong clips they would play. Today they sound very juvenile and stale, but they were a phenomenon, using movies like Jaws and E.T. as backdrops well into the late 1980s. And as like many other things I have a strange distraction to, are an outdated, campy, forgotten oddity of pop culture. Today's selection is a little different since it does not feature recognizable pop music clips for answers, but it's in the same style. It was selected because it emphasizes the long cultural reputation in the West that in Russia, they do not tolerate different opinions or dissent, even on the smallest cultural things. It seems that under Putin today, this mindset is back in vogue. Just ask Navalny or Pussy Riot. Please enjoy Russian Bandstand from Spencer and Spencer, and we'll be right back to the Two Spies Report. Welcome to Russian Bandstand. This is your host, Nikita Clarkchev. In Russia, almost everybody watches Russian Bandstand. Now everybody watches Russian Bandstand. <laughs> Next is number one song in Russia. You got to like that song. It's number one song. But we don't like. Who else doesn't like that song? I don't like any other song. Too late, comrade. Now, anybody else don't like? We like that song. All right, now a word from our sponsor. You better listen. Light up Stroganov. New short-length cigarette. Each cigarette, two puffs. That's all you got time for work 22 hours a day, salt mine. It's only cigarette with microphone filter. So be careful, comrades. Secret police are listening. It's only cigarette I smoke. Right, Comrade Mamarella, Chef? Right. It's only cigarette you can buy. Next on the Russian bandstand is country's number one singing star, Nikita Preslichev. What are you going to sing, Nikita? <laughs> no, that's wrong song. Tomorrow we have new number one singing star. Tomorrow we have new number one song. Hey, Comrade, we are secret police. Tomorrow we have new host on the Russian Bandstand. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment, we will renew our discussions of the historical narrative of the industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News. 
which is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and elsewhere, and which I encourage you to study in print form to fully comprehend its implications in greater detail. We will resume now for my book narrative, the contents of the paper uh, Harrigan, uh, author Harrigan had about the founding of the Christian Freedom Foundation and Christian Economics Newsletter of Howard Kirshner, and more details about their impact on our Christian population in America. I now cite from the author Hedigan in my book. The author Hedigan adds that Kirshner wrote the editorials for, for Christian economics and had an initial writing staff of two economists, George Cother and Percy Greaves, who received instruction from Ludwig von Mises in the correct economic principles to explain to ministers. And for the next 20 years, Kirshner and a succession of staff and guest writers, including von Mises, Hayek, Hockey, and Ropke, consistently defended that laissez-faire position in relation to the external principles, eternal principles contained in the Bible. The CFF urged a return to the abolition of the welfare state and a return to the voluntary charity impulse that glorified the Word of God and the repeal of the 16th Amendment, which, with the establishment of an income tax, had made the state the arbiter of an individual's conscience when it came to the distribution of property. Now, the my view, the voluntary charity impulse alluded to does not glorify the Word of God any more than deciding on a whim on whether to obey the Sabbath years or years of Jubilee would not glorify the Mosaic Law, but rather gives an opportunity for the individual to get the public praise amongst men for their demonstration and conspicuous individual gifts to the needy rolling out of their limousines to briefly salve their conscience with a public donation to the wretched folk that they would otherwise avoid, only when they feel the whim or the need to do so, which even via their foundations creates good public relations that might offset their misdeeds and public recognition of their malevolence in the marketplace. The Christian Libertarians writing in these publications also said that the constitutional amendment authorizing an income tax should be repealed because it violated the first commandment. By forcing citizens to pay tax to finance the welfare state, the federal government replaced God as the keeper of man's conscience, calling it the plan for human salvation inaugurated by Christ. Now note that they have no problem with the government collecting revenue to keep a large national defense, even ones of a nature of scale that would be offensive to many citizens, but resents funds being used to help people in desperate need. If reliance on men's conscience would have been adequate for the task over the last few millennia, then there would be no widespread need of assistance that the government would need to address. Nor would the Sabbath years or you of Jubilees would have been needed if the Jews' conscience had led them to look out for their neighbors themselves and need not be enforced by their own government. Now the author notes that Kirshner believed that the Jews of the Old Testament had obeyed the letter of the Ten Commandments. His faulty theology neglects to note that they were not called to obey the Ten Commandments, 
but rather all 613 statutes in the Mosaic Code. This included the essential practice of the Sabbath years and years of Jubilee, for which their neglect caused them to be sent into exile. As God attests in Scripture, and we have documented, they note that Jesus did not force compulsion to good deeds, so neither should the government. They do not note that Jesus did not reprimand the Roman soldier for forcibly asking a citizen to carry his goods. And rather, Jesus told the citizen to carry them the extra mile. In any case, the needs of the poor and destitute must be met, as God expects. Whether the person purported to follow God chooses to follow his conscience or not. While the, quote, Christian libertarian would not mind if some people fell through the cracks because the more important issue to them is ideological purity, which does not put food on the desperate mother's table. They further claim that with a mankind guarded by the golden, guided by the golden rule, which somehow they think the libertarian lack of all regulation will somehow produce such virtue in humans, a man, quote, can no longer exploit and enslave his fellows, as they say, because they don't want to. Now remember, this teaching was funded by one of the biggest members of Big Oil and must be interpreted in light of his track record. In 1957, Kirshner said at the Grove City College commencement that socialism is anti-God and referred to the sin of socialism. Now this may be surprising news to the many Protestant Christians who live in the many Western European nations who practice a high degree of socialism, even providing state funds for Christian state churches, whose societies exhibit a higher degree of universal compassion and far higher levels of happiness and lifestyle satisfaction in polls than in the United States. It should be noted that no actual Bible verses were cited in any of these libertarian arguments, either, much less entire passages of Bible texts to support their assertions. Now, Kirshner does not in mind imposing government's will on those outside U.S. borders, even though they should be subject to such human rights of freedom as we are making no hesitation of engaging the communist military and involving themselves with third parties and aiding them in throwing off their galling yoke, whether or not they have chosen such a government themselves. He further asserted that communism should be contained militarily when it involved the prestige of the United States and had no faith in the peaceful negotiations and war avoidance of the United Nations with their literature declaring that, of uh, Kirshner's, that the UN is mainly a device for spreading socialist tyranny. Hadigan adds that Kirshner's journal, Christian Economics, did not show as much fear of international communism as it did of the National Council of Churches, and rather said the church should teach that if you worked hard, you would not be poor. They did not want pulpits to comment on political or economic social issues when influenced by their fellow churchmen, i.e. those with no profit motives in the NCC, with them being sowers of discord, but rather wanted them to use the Christian Economics Journal, written by big businessmen and their representatives, as an alternative source of information for sermons on, quote, Christian economics. Now, it looks like we are 
out of time. And we're going to have to share some of this other information, including about uh, Mr. Pugh, for the next show. Um, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. In our next edition, we will continue with our review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form, either at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites, to review this and far more expansive material on the subject and let the deliberative beta brainwaves that we've learned about from print reading do their trick. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com, T-W-O-S-B-I-E-S report at gmail.com. This is for questions for us to discuss on the air. Please make a note if it's not to be shared and broadcast. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN, at 107.1 and 103.7 on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to take a stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road With the good book in my hand Telling all my friends About the promised land Of the joy they'll find there And the peace of Yes.